Well, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been another difficult week at our church as we continue to hear about more people in our church who are um, struggling with COVID and also struggling with other illnesses. We also had a difficult week because we continued to hear about losses of life. And of course, we were all profoundly um, heartbroken to see what happened in our nation's capital earlier this week. You know, as we were gathering, as I was gathering with a number of our pastors the other day, chatting about the events of this week and saying some prayers, we were all reminded of just how much we all need Jesus. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Our nation desperately needs Jesus. And that's all the more reason why the church is so important, why you, the church, play such a vital role in what's going on today. Because if there was ever a time when the church needs to shine its light and speak to others about Christ, it is, it is now, it is today. So I thought I'd begin this service a little bit differently than we have in the past by asking all of our pastors to come here today to lead us in prayer. And so I want to ask you to join us wherever you're at, wherever you're watching from. Let's take a few minutes just to bow your heads with us as we, uh, as we pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that we have someone to turn to, the only one that we can trust and know that you are able to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers. God, even as pastors, we're continually being reminded of the power when we pray. Lord, we're being refreshed. We experience the healing when we come before you in a posture bowed before you, trusting in the one who sits on the throne. God, thank you so much just in these past couple weeks where we have been able to come together and experience the power of prayer. We've experienced that as we've gathered with brothers and sisters in the church through our prayer meetings, through our virtual lobbies, through our time just when we're together in the office. Lord, we have really come to know the comfort and the peace that comes when we look beyond ourselves and we look up and we see a powerful and mighty God. Lord, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. You're powerful and we are not. And so we are dependent on you. We are desperate for you. Lord, we we need you right now in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. And so, Lord, it is with great joy we turn to you right now and we cry out to you in Jesus' name. Father, as we uh, look at the events of this week, it's easy to be discouraged. I know I've been discouraged as we see just sickness all around us and as we see the unrest going on here in our country. But Father, you have called us to be the light, Lord, and we have confidence, Lord, that we are the light because of you. I think of that scripture in John 1, 5, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Father, we can look around us and and feel like maybe the enemy is gaining ground, but at the end of the day, Father, you are victorious. And it's our time as a church where we can shine the brightest, Lord. As each individual, as each group, as each family comes together, Father, let us remind that we serve a victorious God and that we can shine brightly in this time in a world that desperately, desperately needs it. Thank you for that promise and thank you for that scripture, Father. We pray this in your precious name. 
God, you tell us that if we lack wisdom, to God, come before you and ask. And Lord, we, we desperately need wisdom personally, but God, we ask for wisdom for all of our leaders, for those on the city level, to those, God, running our state, county, to the whole country. Lord, we ask for your leadership to lead our leaders, to give them wisdom and discernment, to lead well and to lead godly. God, we know that this past week, Congress has confirmed the electoral votes, and we have a new president. God, we pray for Joe Biden. We pray that he would be led by you, that he would lead well, and most importantly, he would lead godly in a way that honors you. And so, God, I pray that you would bless our leaders with great wisdom, great discernment, and God, ultimately, that they would be great followers of you, the great leader. God, would you be our leader, and would you guide our leaders well? God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we do trust that you are sovereign over our governing systems, over politics, and we also trust, Lord, that you are sovereign over this health crisis. Lord, there are so many in our lives around us in our neighborhoods, our cities, who are on the front lines providing health care, people working the front desks of the urgent cares and the pharmacists and our doctors and nurses and our lab techs. And Lord, there are so many people who are just overwhelmed and hurting and struggling right now, Lord. And so we ask that you, our perfect physician, would care for those who are caring for us through this uh, incredible pandemic and struggle, Lord. We ask that you would intervene, that you would step in, that you would just announce yourself and your presence and, and guide people uh, to, to recover and protect them and with, with good health and that you would allow them to know that you are there, that you are real, that you are good and perfect and strong, Lord. So we ask for your continued guidance as we navigate the rest of COVID and, and your special care and attention to those who are providing care for us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Father, you remind us uh, in Scripture that you are a God who heals. And Lord, we desperately come before you today asking for healing, physical healing upon those who are ill. Father, especially we pray for those who have been suffering from COVID-19. God, uh, this disease has rocked our world, our, our country, um, our, our nation, our city, and, and even at our church, Lord. And I especially pray for those who are just going through the uh, symptoms right now. Lord, I just pray uh, against fever, uh, any type of body ache, chills, Lord, pneumonia, uh, uh, loss of breath, Lord, and God, every symptom that they may be facing at this moment, we ask for your hand and, and healing upon their bodies, Lord. God, we also pray for those who are uh, suffering from other health issues, Lord, whether it be cancer, uh, Lord, heart disease, and, and other types of health disease, Lord. I just pray that you would heal them, that they would look to you, that you would save their lives, Lord, and God, that you would just bring so much comfort into their heart, Lord. And God, especially, we also pray for those who have lost uh, lives, Lord, and especially for family members and friends who are just mourning at this time. God, we ask for uh, your supernatural healing, Lord, as Scripture tells us, you are closer to the brokenhearted. So, Lord, we ask that you be near to those who are hurting, to, do, to those who are uh, just going through this healing process and that you will bring uh, all types of healing, Lord, together, Lord, uh, from people who are suffering physically as, and emotionally, that you will bring healing upon them. So we look to you and we pray this in Jesus, Lord. And Father, we close by thanking you for who you are and for all those, God, in our church who are, who are uh, struggling through this uh, pandemic. And uh, hopefully uh, most of the people who are watching today 
our well. Lord, we pray, God, we just lift everyone up to you, God, and ask for your hand of protection to be upon them and upon their families. Father, we pray that you would steady their hearts and their minds, that you would fill each one of us with a calmness and a peace. Because I'm certain, Father, that there's plenty of anxiety out there, plenty of fear. And so, God, still our hearts before you. And and even today, God, as as we look into your word, I pray that you would speak to us and bring encouragement to all of us who are, who are hurting and who are suffering. And God, continue as I ask that you would have your hand on every one of us. Protect us. Keep us safe, Lord God. We need you, Father. We have nowhere else to turn to. We have a, a virus that is unseen and is insidious. And so we ask for your protection. And God, do a great and mighty work through your church, that our world will know who you are. So thank you, Father. Thank you for our time together to pray. We know that you hear us. We know that you're with us. We know that you love us. And so it is with great confidence and joy that we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us today. It's so good to pray, isn't it? Well, I want to begin today by telling you about a book that I picked up recently uh, by Eric Larson. It's this book right here titled The Splendid and the Vile. The Splendid and the Vile. It's a biography of Prime Minister Winston Churchill who led his nation through his uh, country's darkest hour when London was bombed for 57 consecutive nights by Nazi Germany. Uh, Rarely have I read a a biography that is as compelling and as uh, stirring as this one that I can't even put it down. And I want to urge you, especially if you're a leader or an aspiring leader, to put this book on your reading list for 2021 because uh, it is absolutely uh, amazing. You know, the forward to the book, which describes what England was up against, is so riveting that I want to open today by sharing just a portion of it with you to set the table for what I wanted to speak to you about today. Here's what Larson wrote again in the foreword to the book. No one had any doubt that the bombers would come. On November the 10th, 1932, Stanley Baldwin, then Deputy Prime Minister, gave to the House of Commons a forecast of what was to come. Quote, I think it is well for the man in the street to realize that there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through, unquote. Quote, it was widely believed that London would be reduced to rubble within minutes of war being declared, wrote one junior official. Raids would cause such terror among the survivors that millions would go insane. Quote, London for several days will be one vast raving bedlam, wrote J.F.C. Fuller, a military theorist. Quote, the hospitals will be stormed, traffic will cease, the homeless will shriek for help, the city will be pandemonium. Larson added, the home office estimated that if standard burial protocols were followed, casket makers would, meet 20, would need 20 million square feet of coffin wood, <clears throat> an amount impossible to supply. They would have to build their coffins from heavy cardboard or paper mache or simply bury people in shrouds. For mass burial, the Scottish Department of Health advised, quote, the most appropriate type of grave is the trench grave, dug deep enough to accommodate five layers of bodies, unquote. 
This is what England was facing, according to Larson. And sure enough, the Nazi blitzkrieg began at around 4 p.m. on September the 7th, 1940, when German planes appeared over London. Here's an actual photograph of two of the 348 German bombers, which appeared in London skies that very first day of the Blitz, dropping high explosive bombs and incendiary devices on thousands of innocent people. And Nazis, they didn't stop with London. For the next eight months, they bombed the entire country. And fear and despair and anguish and an utter sense of hopelessness gripped the nation as night after night after night, waves of Nazi bombers pummeled the country. And the Brits almost certainly wondered, perhaps as you have wondered, when will it all end? When will it end? Well, when the bombing finally ended, and it did end, more than 43,000 British citizens were dead. More than 50,000 were seriously injured. Tens of thousands of buildings were completely destroyed, and hundreds of thousands of people were left homeless. When I read this description of the Blitzkrieg, I couldn't help but notice a faint similarity to what we're up against today. Not the actual bombings, of course, but the fear and the despair and the anguish and the sense of hopelessness that many of us have felt because of the pandemic that has no end. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series here called Undefeated. And over the next few weeks, we want to address that growing sense of anxiety and despair and anguish and hopelessness that many in our community, even many in our church, have been feeling. And the message that we want to convey to you is that we are going to make it through this crisis. We are going to make it through this crisis. COVID will not have the final say in our lives. And no matter how long this pandemic lasts, no matter how bad things get, we will not be defeated. That will be the message. And there are going to be many reasons for that, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. Now, our intent is not to simply put a positive spin on what's going on today. And this is not going to be a series on the power of positive thinking, but it's going to be one in which the things that we say will be rooted in the truth of the Word of God. We want to show you what the Bible has to say about overcoming adversity. So if you've been a little down lately, if you've been a little discouraged, if you've been struggling, if you're wondering when will this end, you've come to the right place. And by the way, if you find any of these messages to be helpful or encouraging, I want to encourage you to share it with your family and friends. Now, I've titled today's message, The Other Side of Suffering, because there is another side to suffering. Now, I can tell you from my own personal experience that when I'm suffering, all I can focus on, all I can think of is how I'm suffering. All I can think of is my hurt or my pain. You can't see anything else. When someone says to me, well, God has a purpose for your suffering, I, I, that does not even register with me. I can't even hear or care about what the purpose is. All I can see is the, the pain. Well, my prayer, our prayer is, and, and hope is that as we look at the other side of suffering, it will bring a measure of comfort and hope to you because there is another side. From the very moment that Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of England in May, on May 10th, 1940, 
He knew what was coming. The handwriting was on the wall. The Nazi war machine was barreling its way toward England. Three days after he became prime minister, that would have been May 10th, 1940, he gave his very first speech as prime minister to the House of Commons, which is the lower house of the British Parliament. Here he is. This is a photo of, of him giving that speech. But here's part of what he said. Quote, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, sweat, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, by land and air with all of our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Now this speech is considered by many to be one of the greatest speeches ever given. And one of the notable features, there are many notable features, but one of them was that Winston Churchill didn't sugarcoat what the Britons, British were facing, what they were up against. He said that they faced many, many long months of struggle and suffering. So this was a call to arms. And they would prevail. They had to prevail. And they did. A month after the bombing finally ceased, Churchill was invited to speak at the prestigious Herald School for Boys. After recounting for his audience all that they had suffered and endured in the previous year, Churchill wrapped up his speech with these words. This is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. This was the attitude that undergirded Churchill's leadership. That you never give in. You never give in. And where did this attitude come from? Well, according to his great-grandson, Jonathan Sandys, it came from his faith. And it came from his love of the scriptures. According to Sandys, there was one particular Old Testament passage that Churchill, uh, that guided Churchill throughout his life and that inspired him to lead the way that he did. It was Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let me show that to you. So grab your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. It follows Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then there's Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now Deuter Deuteronomy 9 is the account of a speech that Moses delivered to the Israelites in which he exhorted them to enter the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. Now just to give you some background, 
All right? You might recall that the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years. And one day God sent them an emancipator to free them from Egyptian slavery, and that was Moses. And so Moses went to Egypt, and he was able to free his people, and he led them out of Egypt. And then the Egyptians had a change of heart. They didn't want to let them go. And so they went after the Jews to bring them back. And they chased them away. They chased them right to the Red Sea. And now the Israelites were trapped. They were trapped against the Red Sea on the one side and on the other side was the Egyptian army. And just when it appeared that they would be slaughtered and killed, God performed a miracle by parting the Red Sea. He opened it up, allowing the Israelites to escape through the Red Sea to the other side, which was the Sinai Desert. When they reached the other side, the Red Sea closed in on the Egyptian pursuers and they all perished. Well, now the Israelites were in the desert and their goal was to reach the promised land. It was while they were in the desert that Moses gave this speech and spoke these words to his people, starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy 9, verse 1. Moses said, Hear, O Israel, you were to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess, dispossess means to take possession of, to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? I'm going to stop right there. So Moses, in this speech to the Israelites, urged them to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Now that was just one very huge problem. And that was the land was occupied by a very formidable people known as the Anakims. You can circle that in verse 2. The, the Anakims were there. And let me tell you who the Anakims were. The Anakims weren't Koreans. They weren't, they weren't Jedis. That's Anakin. The Anakims were descendant, descendants of Anak. And verse, tell, verse 1 tells us that they were greater and mightier than the Jews. And verse 2 tells us that they were great and they were tall. History tells us that they were a race of giants. And they lived in the land of Canaan. And their cities were fortified up to the heavens, meaning their cities were impenetrable. You couldn't get into them. And this is why the Israelites had to go up. This is what they had to go up against if they wanted to occupy the promised land. Now, here's what Moses told the Israelites next. Take a look at verse 3. He said, Now therefore today, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their, their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations... The Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
You can stop right there. So this passage is packed with so much truth about the power and the character of God and his activity behind the scenes. First, God is described here as a consuming and devouring fire. Notice that. The Israelites understood this, this, this depiction of God because the Bible tells us that when he led them out of Egypt, he led them by a pillar of fire, uh, by a pillar of fire by night. And so they understood that God appeared to them in a fire. And Moses now told them that when they marched into the land of Canaan, God would go before them as a consuming fire, which meant that the Anakims didn't have a chance because God would burn them alive. And the message that Moses was trying to convey to his people was that there was no foe, there was no enemy, there was no one who could stand against their God. Nothing was too hard for God. No mountain was too big for God that he couldn't overcome it. As we like to sing, he is the way maker and he is the miracle worker. We also see in this passage that God is a holy God and he hates sin and he acts against sin. We also see that he is a faithful God. This is all about God keeping his promises and he promised to give them a, 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 the land of Canaan and he does keep his promises. He promised to give them a land and he's gonna keep that promise. Moses also tells us here that God is a gracious God. He acts on our behalf, not because we're good. He acts on our behalf even in spite of us. And he blesses us even though we don't deserve to be blessed. And we learn from Moses that God would do all the work. He would do all of this. All they needed to do was show up. And this was the passage this was the passage that, according to Churchill's great-grandson, guided his life inspired and inspired him to lead the way that he did. Deuteronomy 9 was why Churchill exhorted his people to never give up. This was the story that church, why, is why Churchill had hope uh, in the face of insurmountable odds because he knew that God could do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And that's why we also must never give up because God can do for us. He can do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's the first point. I want you to write that one down. Don't give up because God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. If everyone in your house is sick with COVID, don't give up. Don't despair because God can do for you what even the doctors can't do for you. If you have lost a loved one recently, don't give up because God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. He can comfort you and wipe away your tears. If you're lonely and afraid, don't give up because God can do for you what no one else can do. He can come and be your friend. If you are struggling in your marriage and you're ready to throw in the towel, don't because God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. He can change your heart and he can change the heart of your spouse, things that you can't do on your own. If you're struggling financially, don't give up because he can do for you what you can't do for yourself. He can open up doors and provide for your needs. No matter what it is you're going through, no matter how hard life is, don't give up because of what God can do for you. 
Now, what you may not have known about the political climate in England at the time that Churchill became prime minister was that there were voices in the country that espoused an appeasement policy toward the Nazis. In other words, there were those in England who believed that, that the countries should simply do nothing to Hitler. They shouldn't attempt to stop him. They should simply roll over and give up. One of those men, one of those voices was that of Neville Chamberlain, this man here, who was the man that, that Churchill replaced as the prime minister. Here he is with Hitler, all smiles. Imagine what would have happened if Chamberlain led England instead of Churchill. The nation would surely have come to ruins like France and Belgium and Norway and Denmark and Austria and Poland and all the others in Europe. Fortunately, England looked to Churchill and he saved them and he, and he gave them a victory. And let, and let me give you an idea what this victory looked like. In February uh, of last year, David Kindy of the Smithsonian Magazine interviewed Eric Larson, the author of this book, and he asked him specifically what it was like after the bombings stopped. Here's what Larson said. The day after was this amazing quiet. People couldn't believe it. The weather was good. The nights were clear. What was going on? And day after day, it was quiet. No more bombers over London. It was surreal. For the first time in months, they could hear the birds chirping. And they could hear the trees rustling in the gentle wind. And, here's, and it was so sweet. But here's the thing. If the Brits didn't stand up against the Nazi war machine and persevere, they would have never experienced the blessings that followed. They, they wouldn't have experienced that. This reminds me of another story I heard several years ago. A church consultant named Tom Rayner, I've cited him uh, here before, found that the average tenure of a pastor in his church is about three to four years. That's about as long as most pastors last in any given church, about three to four years. Most pastors, the majority of pastors quit only after a few years, partly because ministry is so hard. Rayner also found that most pastors don't begin to experience blessings, the fruit of their labors, until about the sixth year. So you got to stick around until at least year six when a pastor begins to hit his stride, stride and that's when the blessings start to come. Now, if Rainer's findings are correct, that means that many pastors miss out on God's blessings because they quit before the blessings come. You know, in the Bible, there's a story about a man named Job who suffered about as much as anyone could ever suffer. Lost his family, lost his livelihood, he lost his health. And, and, he, and the advice that his wife gave him was, give up, give up. Here are her precise words in Job chapter 2, verse 9. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die Curse God and die. I can't fathom anyone giving anyone this kind of advice. Curse God and die. Well, fortunately, Job didn't take her advice. He didn't curse God and die. And he didn't 
give up. Instead, he persevered. And do you know how the story of Job ends? Well, you have to go to the very last chapter. Job chapter 42, verse 10 says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then if you jump down two verses to verse 12, it says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job Job more than his beginning. God blessed Job. He blessed him more at the end of his life than he did at the beginning of his life because he didn't give up. He didn't give up. Imagine how the story would have ended if he followed his wife's advice. The ending would have been a lot different and Job would have missed out on all the blessings that God had for him. Just like England would have missed out on the blessings that God had for them had she given up. Just like pastors miss out on blessings because they quit too soon. You know, the takeaway truth from this is that blessings follow those who persevere. Blessings follow those who persevere through hardship and through suffering, through adversity. Blessings come to those who don't give up. And you can write that one down. Blessings follow those who don't give up. But here's what else I want you to know. Not all blessings that come as a result of our not giving up, not all blessings will be enjoyed in this life. What do I mean? You know, I've known a lot of precious people in our church who have persevered through extreme hardship, like cancer. And sometimes God takes them home. And they don't experience the blessings of persevering in this life. I remember one dear lady who attended our church, a young mother of two boys, two young boys, and she battled cancer valiantly, but in the end it claimed her life. She never gave up, yet at the end, in the end, she didn't receive the blessings of her perseverance in this life. She didn't experience them in this life. Instead, she received it after she arrived in heaven. James 1.12 puts it this way, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, the crown of life is a reward we receive for being steadfast, for never giving up, and we receive it after we get to heaven. You know, we have been so conditioned to think that this life is everything, that we want our blessings and we expect to be blessed now and today. And that's not, that's not always how it works. We certainly can be blessed today. But oftentimes the blessing comes for us at the end of our lives when we get to heaven. And the point is this, no matter how hard things are for you, don't give up. Don't give up because blessings will follow. Blessings will follow whether they are here, whether you receive them here or whether you receive them in heaven. Well, let me close with this. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrote something uh, truly insightful about the way God has ordered the world. Um, it's found in Ecclesiastes 3, starting verse 1. Let me just read it uh, for you. And you've pro you're probably familiar with this. But here's what Solomon wrote, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The key verse, which really sets everything up, is verse 1. For everything there is a season. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time for every matter under heaven. Solomon was basically saying that God has ordained the seasons of man. God has ordained the seasons of man. He has fixed our times. He has fixed our times so that every human event and every human activity has a, has a start date and an end date. It has a start time and an end time, which means that everything we go through, everything we go through in life is temporary. It is temporary. Even life itself is temporary. David, who in his lifetime experienced one heartbreak after the other, one heartbreak after the other, wrote about this as well. In Psalm 30, verse 5, he wrote, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You know, David who, uh, David said that weeping has a start time, a start date, and it also has an end date or an end time. Weeping doesn't last forever. And he knew this from personal experience. He alluded to it in verse 11, the next verse. He said, you turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. You see, there was a time in David's life when he was so grief-stricken, all he could do was cry. All he ever did was mourn. All he ever did was wail. It might have been when his son Absalom died. It might have been when his best friend Jonathan was killed and the tears couldn't stop falling. Have you ever experienced something like that when you just can't stop crying? Yeah, maybe you can relate. This week we received an email from a lady in our church who shared her grief with us. She told us that she lost three precious people in her life this last December, all within a space of a few days. Two family members and a, and a close friend. And I would imagine she can't stop crying. One day, one day, he stopped crying. One day there was a breakthrough. David doesn't tell us what that breakthrough was. All we know is that one day God turned his mourning into dancing. And he removed the sackcloth and he clothed David with joy. And I believe that one day he'll do that for you. And he'll do that for us. Because that's how God has ordered the world. God has fixed our times so that there are times of mourning and there are times of weeping and there are times of joy and there are times of dancing. I believe that God has fixed our times so that everything is temporary, which means that COVID will not get the last say in your life. And the nightmare that perhaps you are living today will one day come to an end. And one day you will be able to go back to school. And one day you'll be able to go to a restaurant and have a meal. And one day, 
We'll be able to meet at church without masks and social distancing, and we'll be able to hug each other. I believe that day is coming. And uh, I also believe that the nightmare that you're living might end when he takes you home to be with him. It might end that way, but it will end. So if you're disheartened, if you're discouraged, if you're wondering when will this all end, hang in there. Church, hang in there. Don't give up. All right, that's your final point. Don't give up because one day all suffering will end. It will end. And a time is coming when there will be no more tears. A time is coming when there will be no more weeping and he will wipe away our tears. You see, the other side of suffering is that God loves you and he can do for you. With all that you're going through, he can do for you what you can't do for yourself, so don't give up. And the other side of suffering, that blessings await. Blessings await. And one day your suffering will come to an end. And so as Winston Churchill said to the boys at Harold's school, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, as we are going through such a difficult time, I know that it has probably been on everyone's mind. When will this end? And Father, all we can say is that we thank you for your word and we thank you for the examples that we've seen here today that remind us and that tell us that we should never give up. We should never give up because you are always working. We should never give up because we have a God on our side who loves us and we have a God who can do things that we can't do for ourselves. God, thank you for your scriptures which remind us that blessings await if we, if, we, if we persevere, if we endure to the end. And God, thank you for your, your reminder to us that this season will pass, that everything is temporary. And Father, your, your solution for us may be to take us home to be with you. I don't know. But how good it is to know that one day, one day, Lord, we'll be in your presence and you will wipe away all of our tears and all of our mourning will be gone and our mourning will turn to dancing. Father, I pray for all those who are listening and watching today who are struggling. God, give them the courage to keep going on. And Father, I pray that you would intervene in the lives of everyone listening today. However it is that they need your assistance, Father, please help them. However it is that they need your presence, please be with them. However it is that they need to keep going on, give them the courage and the faith and the hope to keep going on. And Father, one day I believe, I believe that all this will come to an end and we will be together again. And if it's not here, it will be with you in heaven and we will rejoice. So thank you, Father, for your love for us. And, and Father, finally, if there's anyone out there who is watching or listening, who has yet to put their faith and trust in a mighty God who is for them, Father, help them right now. 
to come to you in faith, to believe you in faith, to trust you in faith, because you are a God who loves him and you are a God who is with him. And you are a God who will carry us through even the darkest of times. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your, for your goodness to us. Help us, God. We need you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.